Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Sandra Hogan, who is the Group Head of Customer Analytics at Origin Energy. Sandra tells us about her career and how she got to where she is today. She also shares her views on applied data science and what it takes to make it successful. Uh, One of the key points there, she says to focus on your stakeholders ability to consume analytics uh, she discusses that in, a, in more detail and I think it's a really really important point uh, she talks about uh, what it is to do analytics for good and also the importance of mentorship in data science it's a really great episode and I hope you you enjoy it Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and I'm sitting here with Sandra Hogan. Thanks so much for making the time. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, good, thanks. Thank um, you. Thanks for having me in your uh, very nice offices here. Yeah, they're not bad, are they? Yeah, it's so, pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. Nice to get into the warmth in a cold Melbourne day. I know, winter's hit bad. <laughs> too, too quickly. <laughs> Way too quickly. I know. It's what we get for having such a good long summer, I think. Yes. It's our payback. <laughs> Uh, I've been uh, looking forward to having a chat with you for some time. Uh, thanks again for making the time. Okay. And um, I wanted to ask you about your your early days. How did you get started in in this space? Yeah, well, it's um, it's interesting. I've, I've talked about this often, but I mean, I I got into mathematics, and I'll call it a very young age, mainly because um, I come from uh, a non English speaking background. And when my parents uh, immigrated to Australia, none of us, well, they didn't speak English, and then they're not, you know, and I was a, a baby. And then as we went to, as I went to school, I still didn't speak English. Um, yeah. And so the one thing that really helped me cope with the fact that I was learning a new language as well as trying was mathematics. And so from a very young age, I just gravitated towards numbers. And so, you know, that's kind of always been there for me because it's, it's agnostic of the language, of, of you know, yes. of culture, of anything. So I've always had a passion for it. So all through school, always maths and things. And so it was a natural progression to go into, um, you know, engineering and mathematics at uni. Um, and then as I went through and I was doing all the maths, every type, I, I was struggling to kind of find um, where I really... Um, really was enjoying the work because that was a lot of interesting work but I couldn't see how it would apply in real life and then um, you know I met a really good lecturer in about second year who mm-hmm. kind of introduced me to um, the world of statistics and the application of statistics in, in the in the world in the real world in a business context and that was it for me I was hooked and so I then went on and, and, and just pursued just stats the whole time and so, I mean and these days statisticians are probably a dying breed they're being yes. replaced by <laughs> developers and data scientists but 
back um, when I did my degree in, you know, in the early 90s, that's, that's well, you know, where I kind of ended up. So I've always worked in analytics and I call it analytics and not data science because that's a new evolution of this industry that's only recent. So when I was doing this initially, it was, analy it was really anal analytics, not data science. So, we, you know, we didn't have big data back then. And Correct. <laughs> <laughs> that's a new term as well. And what, do you, uh, yeah. what do you see as the difference between data science and analytics? Um, for, for analytics, I see it as uh, as more around um, the outcomes of the data and what you do with it. Whereas I think data science goes back further than that. It's more back to okay, how do I capture the data? How do I integrate it into an application? Um, and so the skill sets are quite different, I think, between a, a traditional analyst that I came from and the new data scientist type roles where you have to be you have to be a developer. And as well as an analyst, so that I think the roles have morphed, and you know I'm glad I'm not, um, you know, at that age. Or oh, maybe I'd be all right if I was, but I, I, you know I'm kind of not in that zone of really having to deal with that um, complexity around the big data and then the analysis side of it. You know, things were I think a little bit easier when I was first starting out my career. Nah, you'd be able to pick it up easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> so when when you started, did you start working as an analyst? Um, from the start? Yeah, pretty much from day one. Yes. So um, my first role was actually at Monash University where mm -hmm. I was um, still studying. Um, I don't think I ever wanted to leave uni in the beginning because I just loved it, <laughs> the lifestyle so much. You know, casual and, and you know, didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, t deadlines as much. Exactly. So I first started working in a research centre within Monash campus um, around accident research centre. So crashing cars, crash test dummies, capturing the data and analysing um, the impact um, to the vehicle, to the occupants, um, and looking at um, different ways of measuring. So road safety was kind of where I started off. So yes, from day one, I was applying statistical modelling techniques to the data, capturing data, um, preparing data, analysing it, and presenting it back in, a, in the environment. So yeah, literally from straight away. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, was the, the, the data capture, was that mostly done manually? Yes, so it is. I won't say what year it was because yes. it's so long ago now. Um, but yes, absolutely, we were we were putting sensors um, mm -hmm. then onto the vehicle. Um, so that that kind of technology has been around for a long time. Maybe not as sophisticated as it is today, but we would put sensors on the crash test dummies on the vehicles, and also just we'd be looking at other data, environmental factors. We were collecting data from the weather weather providers. Um, we were looking at police reports. We were manually creating data from police reports around accidents that occurred at major intersections. So, yeah, it was a very manual process, but, you know, we had data entry people that would help out um, yes. as well as doing some of the work ourselves. But the data was always really bad quality, so a lot of work cleaning up the data and getting it ready for analysis. Yes, yeah. exactly. But that's... That's so interesting because even um, obviously that still happens now that um, sometimes, often, some of the best data is captured uh, manually. Mm. And uh, there's cases like in uh, in Netflix, they get they get people to watch movies and then fill out like this 500 question questionnaire uh, about the movie just so they can have the data to fit into the, the machine learning models. Mm. Uh, so that's that's exactly what you guys were doing. Yeah. That's that's yeah, really interesting. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, so it sort of did a full cycle. Um, but I mean, even today, a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of the data is still manual. Like, you know, people still complete server. You know, there is still paper-based, you know, customer surveys and things that get sent out. Not everything is digitized, and you actually, you know, you want to catch the verbatim sometimes, or even voice to text. That's you know, new, the new capabilities in that space. That's all kind of what I would call unstructured 
um, and work and data that needs a lot of work. A lot of work. Yes, lot exactly. Of work. Yeah. Exactly. That's interesting. And then, so after uh, doing the road safety work, where, where did you go to next? Uh, yeah, so it's at Monash. Um, I, had a, I had a really good job there of doing all that analysis. And then I got um, approached by one of the government agencies that we were doing the work for um, to sort of come and work with them and extend that work into a more day-to-day -day activities. And so I was really interested in that because I, while I loved doing the modelling side of things and the technical things, I was, I've always been more curious as to the so what. Mm -hmm. So once I've found out that this is what happens to a vehicle or an occupant for these different type of crash scenarios, I was more interested, well, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? How do we change the outcome of that so we don't have more injuries and things? So I joined the TAC, mm -hmm. Transport Accident Commission, yes. um, and started continuing on the work there um, around initially marketing type campaign so you know drink drive bloody idiot if you remember yes. that from a long time ago um, I worked on that as an analyst in the background looking at the cause and effect of the campaigns and the ads that were running and how that was correlated or not to uh, road to crash outcomes so we did a lot of work in trying to attribute the campaigns with the outcomes we saw in our database of people who were lodging claims for car accidents um, so I worked there for quite a few years. Yeah, a lot of interesting work. And, and from there, I sort of progressed out of marketing back into more what I call traditional analytics, looking at uh, injury profiling. And we were looking at things like trying to understand um, how could we improve the health of our, our claimants um, more quicker. So what was the optimal level of physio treatment, as certain types of injuries um, needed to, to be optimal, and also to manage, I suppose, the, the bottom line. We wanted to make sure that people got the treatment that they needed for their injuries. But at the same time, we had to be careful of fraud from providers mm -hmm. and making sure over-servicing wasn't occurring so that the treatment was necessary and leading to a good outcome for that claimant versus just you know, physios just providing treatment and then getting obviously paid for it and not, not the claimant not needing it. So I worked a lot in that space. A lot of my early career was around segmentation mm -hmm. um, and I that was my thesis actually as well around clustering really? techniques. Um, yeah, so I was very interested in segmentation. I did a lot of work um, at the TAC in trying to segment um, our customer base, if you like, in that case being claimants of you know, into, into different injury segments so that we could better align our business. In actual fact, one of the segmentations that I worked on, we, we actually restructured the entire organisation around that segmentation. So we segmented the, the portfolio of claimants and then we actually yeah. aligned business areas, teams, structures, managers, um, you know, service providers, call centres, everything was aligned around that segmentation so that we could, you know, maximise and optimise the, the outcomes um, for the, obviously for the government with the money that was being spent, but also the claimants getting back to work or back to their normal life as quick as possible after their accident. That is fantastic. That would have been so yeah. exciting to it see was. your work change and organisation yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's kind of where, from then on, that was it. That was, you know, I'm not... I don't mind getting hands-on, although I'm not much anymore, but that's where I get most of my, um, you know, drive from. It's it's what we do with the outcome. It's not, you know, don't have to be extremely sophisticated sometimes to get some really good outcomes, but it's the business change that's the harder bit to do. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But it, it, it's really interesting because it seemed that um, from from early on, you were interested, obviously, on the data analysis, but then obviously on almost on the psychology of people, um, around the data and then on the business applications as well. Uh, what what, um, what uh, grabbed your curiosity uh, as you were moving through the different areas? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was a conscious thing initially. I think I'm just mm. naturally a, a curious person. Um, I don't work well on my own either. I'm yeah. not, 
I'm not an analyst who likes to sit at my desk. Um, and it, sometimes I do. So I, I preface that with I'm kind of in between. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm very introverted and I'm definitely not overly extroverted. I'm in between. So for me, it was, you know, wanting to look at data and then I can't answer all the questions, right? Yes. I don't know everything. So I have to go and ask people and talk to people. So once I started to do that and realised that actually there's a really good way to so it's iterative, right? And I can get a really good outcome if I understand more about my customer needs and what the business needs. So with that work on the segmentation at TAC, we were very focused on what could we do if we knew that you were, you know, um, I mean, some obvious things like brain injuries, right? They're really obvious. You know, you know, recovery profiles, they're quite predictable to a certain extent. But when you get to soft tissue type injuries that people, the actual um, recovery profiles are massively variate. Yes. Huge variation from a day one treatment to some people who never really recover from a soft tissue injury and it's you know so you've really got this huge variation so i was really interested in okay so if we can identify them accurately so what what could we apply what are the things that we can do so that was very driven around an outcome what we wanted to achieve which was you know trying to improve the lives of these people who had suffered these injuries and knowing you know being able to accurately predict what might be a good treatment was really uh, rewarding as well. So and I don't know if it's called it the psychology of it. It's more just I wanted everything that we do and my team does and what I did you know, always to be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there's not really much point if you were, you know, analytics for the sake of analytics is not really going to make any difference. And whether it's a, you know, you know, I would consider more analytics for good, mm-hmm. as in I was working in a role that was very focused on um, improving someone's life to other other teams I've worked at and other roles where I'd say, you know, it's analytics for you know, maybe evil marketing, it depends how you look at it, but you know, yes. for a more commercial outcome versus a more, you know, human-centred uh, outcome. So I, I think it's just natural curiosity and, and knowing that I can't, I can't answer things on my own. Yes. So I have to engage with people to get the right outcome. But that's really great combining the, I, I guess, the, the hard data analysis by yourself and in a team and then with the... Um, I guess the soft skills or, or speaking to people and finding out what's what's out there and mm. uh, what people's perce- perception of the problem is, combining the two to get a business outcome, that's uh, quite a, that's almost like the full end-to-end mm. um, analytics done right, I, I think. Yeah, possibly. And, and I've just found in my career that's, that is, that skill set's not common. Yes, great. <laughs> uh, I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I, have, I don't like to think I'm unique. But in a way that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, that was a unique skill set. It's, it's getting, it's more common now and more people are seeing the sides to it. But back in the day, you were either a back of house analyst mm-hmm. and you were in a, locked in a dark room down, down in the basement yes. um, or you were in the business and you were, you were asking for data. You weren't, you know, so I think, I think yeah, that's, to me though, I, I need to be both to be, achieve what I wanted to achieve. And how, how did that come about in bridging the two, the two worlds for you? Yeah, I, I'm a person that's comfortable to step out of my comfort zone. Yes. And I think that, that helps. If you, if you don't let yourself open up for failure, and yeah. I did fail sometimes, Definitely. then I think you just won't grow into it. And it wasn't always comfortable for me to do that. But I think I just I have an internal drive which overrides that fear and just says, don't worry about it, it'll work out. Um, so being an internal optimist, I always, you know, 
And I've been knocked down a lot of times in terms of, you know, senior leaders who don't get it, don't trust it. Yes. You know, so you've just got to kind of cop it on the chin and try and, okay, how else can I approach this problem, solve it, talk to this person? And, you know, I'm very persistent, I think. (laughs) I don't give up very easily. So I think just continuing to do that makes... And look, I was lucky at the TSC. One of the senior leaders there really had an analytical mind, Mm -hmm. um, very, very high intelligence. and, And I think we worked well together because... He had the ideas, but he didn't have the skills to access the data and to find out whether he could prove or disprove his hypothesis. Um, And I could do that. And then I also got, I understood the way he thought because he wasn't your traditional, you know, um, senior leader. He was very, very different from that. So I think that's what worked well. And then he had the trust by then of the of the CEO. And then he said, look, yeah, we're going to take this data-driven approach. Let's give it a go. Let's trial it. And then we use that little small pockets of little wins to try and get other people on board and, and do it slowly. And it's been the theme ever since, right? Every role I've had has been around identifying the little pockets that you can prove something and get some wins slowly. And you can't you can't go big bang. People don't don't work that way, especially when people are in senior positions. You know, our our thought patterns um, overtake sometimes our rational thinking. You know, we're so structured in and so driven by our experience to our detriment, actually, sometimes. You know, we've got to let go of what we think we know the answer is sometimes mm-hmm. and try something new. And senior leaders, CEOs, executives find that hard to do because they got to where they got to because of their experience and, and their expertise. So, you know, it's pretty, <laughs> it's simple when you think about it, but it's so hard in practice to change it. It's so hard. It is so hard. And you would have seen that as well in your roles. It's just... Yes. It almost goes against, uh, as you say, people's nature of what got them there. Um, so how, how do you... Oh, there's, there's so many questions because that was such a... Um, just such a great uh, piece of uh, story in your life. But how, how do you... You said that in, when you start roles, you always start small uh, and trying to get people's buy-in. How how is that pro- how does that process work out um, in when you go into a new place? Yeah, it, I, yeah. I mean, I don't think I ever had a set formula when I first started. It just happened organically. Yes. I probably have more of a structure around it now, and I think having worked also seven years in consulting roles really made a big difference because I really had to adjust my style and and the approach based on all the different clients I was working with all the time. I, mm-hmm. I think. That was, even though it was one of the toughest things I've ever done when I left um, my role at Telstra after 10 years and, and joined um, EY, while, you know, that was actually one of the hardest two years of, of my life as an analyst, I actually learnt probably, you know, 10 years worth of stuff in two years just by the pure nature of you have to operate at a very different level when you work in those firms and you're, you're engaged, you don't, you know. So, so adapting and learning on the fly is something that, you know, you have to learn, I think, in today's environment because nothing really stays the same. But I, I mean, my, my approach is, is, is very much around um, understanding what the business is about. So, you know, what is the goals? So what is the overall business objectives, not just of the organisation at a big high level, but also mm-hmm. down to a business unit. So, you know, here at Origin, I needed to understand, well, what is retail trying to achieve? You know, what's our retail business? We have lots of business areas, but what's retail? What's the call centre? trying to achieve what's the marketing team trying to achieve because as soon as you if you understand what they're trying to achieve then you can start to think about where does analytics and where does data fit in and and then understanding the where they're at with their maturity so i think i've become pretty good over the years of reading 
um, where people are at in their ability to consume analytics because mm-hmm. that, that's really my driver at the end of the day. If my team can deliver something, can the customer consume it, the stakeholder? Yes. And then if they can't consume it, we are not ready to build it. What we then need to Correct. do is take a step back and say, what can we build that they can consume? So for me, I've changed my thinking. I used to always believe early on in my career, let's get all this advanced analytics out there and then we'll get the customer to you know, the stakeholders will absolutely get it, love it, and they'll execute it. And that's not reality. The reality is, is that we've got to play their game, not our game. And our game is to understand what they want to achieve and then position the right analytics that they are ready to consume. And so, you know, great example, you know, for the first half of my career at Telstra, it was very frustrating because mm-hmm. I had that first mindset of let's build out all the models and have everything ready to go and then, you know, They'll, they'll absolutely love it. And we, we failed over and over yep. because we had marketing teams who were very traditional, didn't get data, didn't get analytics, you know, had the concept in their mind around targeting customers, mm-hmm. but they didn't understand a predictive model. They just said, oh, you tell me that they're, you know, blonde hair and blue eyed are more likely to buy a mobile phone. All right. Give me all the customers who are blonde-haired and blue-eyed, and we're like, no, that's not what we want. We yeah. want, and we did, but we had to take, you know, steps to educate and to get them comfortable with a different approach. So, early first five years were very frustrating. Second five years at, at Telstra, um, you know, there was a change in leadership, which helped, but also yes. we changed our approach. We said, okay, we can't, we're not winning this way. We've got all these analytics; they're just sitting there. No one's consuming them. So then I started to send out the managers and say, go and work with marketing for. Four weeks, you know, sit mm-hmm. with them, listen to them, go to their meetings, find out what they're talking about, understand how they how, how do they execute things, what do they do, come back <laughs> and tell us. And that yes. worked a treat because not only did we start to understand more about what marketing needed, to, how they worked, not just marketing but call centres and all that, but we also they also asked questions of the people that we seconded in there and said, you know, what sort of data do you have? What do you do with it? How does that happen? And then so two way. Um, conversation started to evolve and I think the second half of my time at at Telstra was you know like having 10 years in one go because we just accelerated after that once we started to really create analytical assets as I call them that were ready to be consumed and we adapted them to the current business process eventually they were also then willing to change and test new things um, so that was a huge pivotal point, and I think now that's kind of my standard approach is yes. what's the business trying to achieve, what are they ready for to consume, and then go back to the team and say, right, this is what I hear, and say, if you hear something different, let me know. Let's work on a program of work that lines up with our stakeholders' you know, maturity and readiness. Yes. And what, what was it that made you make that change, that pivot? I think just observing that, you know, I actually felt sorry for the team a couple of times because we produced some bloody good models, really highly predictive, and they just sat on the shelf and they went nowhere. No matter what document we created, what PowerPoint we used, how we had tried to approach it, just went nowhere. Yes. And I felt for them because they poured their heart and soul into building this, you know, analytical um, asset and it just... It didn't get consumed, and I think that was just a, I don't know, my brain just went, ah, okay, let's try something else. Again, it's just, it's second nature now. Yes. But I do remember at the point that, yeah, I, I, I didn't want, I wanted my team to be um, valued, and I didn't feel, I don't want, giving a data request to an analyst is really soul destroying. It is. It is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> can you extract that data for me? Can you put it in a spreadsheet and send it to me? <laughs> 
And honestly, we were just, you know, I looked at what we were getting. We were, you know, getting, you know, thousands of requests a year. And if you broke it down, because we started to track what was coming in, you know, 80% of it was data requests, you know. Right. So it was change, trying to change that and make the analysts, number one, utilising their skills, mm -hmm. um, but two, making yes. them feel um, appreciated and part of the business. And you can't do that if you're sitting in a back room and just taking orders. So I think that's just a given now, it's changed. But, you know, back in the early, you know, mid-2000s, that was the way that, you know, we were treated, um, you know, in that organisation. Yes, and I think it's still the same in a lot of places where there isn't that communication between the analyst and the business, like the communication that you created yeah. uh, at Telstra, by like sending the, the people to seconded to sit yeah. with the teams. Yeah. Um, and when, when you had, when you looked at all the requests that you were getting and they were mostly data requests, um, did you have to take a stance with the business to say, we're not going to do that work? Um, or did you try something different? I don't think you can be that blanket yes. in one go, unfortunately, <laughs> because, you know, it depends. So, I mean, we try, I've tried a couple of things depending on which roles. Um, depending on where IT are at in an organization, you can also leverage them. Um, but, I mean, these days, you know, data warehousing and, and data lakes and whatever else you want to call the data, the, the data repositories are, uh, um, are, are still always going to be problematic. So it's difficult to divert, you know, a data request to someone else when, you know, there isn't another function. But, you know, one, one tactic is to try and, you know, work with IT and say, well, okay, if you, you know, do you have developers, do you have people who can build applications or report in their reporting capabilities that people can use? And I mean, Long, these days, we have a lot more technology in this space, right? If you think about it, you know, Tableau, Power BI, and it goes on and on and on. Yes. Um, Visualize that can handle that, the complexity of some of the data sources. But, you know, 10, even, even 10 years ago, yeah. you know, people were still just getting static dashboards and things. So when you wanted to look underneath a number that's a huge summary of lots of information, you were stuffed. You had to go to the analytics team. It's the only place you could do it. So it's a, it's, it's a maturity of the technology as well as, as the, you know, how do we position it. So, I mean, I, again, I would, I would pick my stakeholders where I would try different things. Mm -hmm. So some stakeholders where I felt that their people were ready to consume not just data, but we could give them a bit more than that so that they could, you know, access a, you know, a, a, a presentation layer that let them do things a bit more sophisticated than we'd start to pick people and say, okay, I'm not going to give you that report, but I'm going to give you even an, a pivot table in Excel mm -hmm. and just get them started on that. These days, that's impossible because the data is too big now, but, yeah. you know, you could give that to them to start to teach them um, with that and then and then start to squirrel off. So my, my, my approach has always been to keep the core business happy because you can't just change things, but then squirrel off two or three people and give them um, time and space to build um, value-added things like an asset that's more that had you know pick a couple of business stakeholders to say we're going to try something different are mm -hmm. you in you know make it a game yes. make it fun make people think that they're doing something that's you know gonna um, make them uh, make a difference that's you know more than just a data request so there's lots of different things you can try but for me it's always been about understanding the stakeholders and, and then using them to to drive the change as well um, so I think yeah there's a lot I'm trying to think of all the different things. Um, you know, things like focusing on the business problem, not getting hung up on the data. You know, a really good way to engage with someone who's asking a data request is to just say, let's sit down. So don't, you know, sit down before you start the work. Let's talk about what your business problem is, what you're trying to solve for, and having that conversation. Even then, sometimes you still end up with them saying, 
uh, yeah, okay, I, I get what you're asking, but can you just give me the data? So you've got to kind of weigh it up, you know, how much you push back on that. And then sometimes you, you find a customer, a stakeholder that is actually got a more open mind and they're willing to, to talk to you more about what they're trying to do. And then, you know, you, you eventually find someone. Yes. These days it's a lot easier because there's a lot more pervasiveness of data analytics in organisation. You know, it'd be very hard pressed to find a company now, um, you know, either a medium or a large company where no, people don't talk about data analytics and their strategy and their business strategy and where they're going. But, you know, 10 years ago, it was not discussed even at a board level, right? Today, you know, and I can tell you now, you know, I report to the origin board around our data analytics capabilities and how we're going. So the board here cares about it. But, you know, 10 years ago, no. Nah. Not at all. No way. So, you know, and the CEO here, you know, you know, that's the conversations I've had with him in the past. So, you know, and his questions are not about how good we are at data analytics. His, his questions have always been around how much are my people consuming the data analytics? What are my leaders doing? Are they coming to you and asking to help solve business problems? So he's very switched on here at Origin, um, but I know it's not the same everywhere, but that's how you can gauge, you know, how, how are you going to you know, approach a problem around getting analytics more into the organization. Exactly, exactly. And and to do that, to get it into into the, the organization and have, I guess, widespread adoption, do you, is, how, essentially, my question is, how do you do, you do that? It sounds like you've taken a, uh, it sounds like, from what you said, that you always try to help people um, help themselves, so you give them, you know, some access to the data so they can uh, look for answers themselves uh, while doing, I guess, more of the foundational work or the platform work uh, in your team. Is that how you do it or is it different? Um, I suppose it varies depending on what, what we're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. I mean, here, here at Origin, I mean, the first thing I did in my first few months here was just to assess kind of the current state. You know, what's the culture like around data analytics? You know, we've got lots of people around doing different things. What are they really doing? Are they doing proper analytics and data science? Are they just doing data work, you know? Where, where is people's consumption at? Like, what are the stakeholders? What's their perception of how data and analytics or data science can help them? So, you know, I spent the first, you know, little while, you know, understanding less about the team because, you know, my, I, don't, I suppose, I suppose I've run, managed these team, these kinds of teams for a long time. So, you know, you can work out pretty quickly whether they have good data capabilities or not, but it's more around the stakeholders. So, you know, what are different people trying to do? What's their level of engagement, you know, around it? You know, are they are they perceiving that they're getting information that they need today or are they not? You know, do they even have a, an appetite to consume analytics or are they so locked into their way of doing things that, you know, so it's around understanding, mm. I suppose, the environment, the culture um, is always the first thing I do. And then I go, well, okay, based on that, Let's talk to the team, find out what their views have been, what's there been their experience. Um, here I've done, I, mean, I kind of picked up some teams at different levels of maturity and capability. And so I've been working through saying, well, okay, we need to, we need to lift up everyone to the same level of skill set and capability. There's no point having, you know, a data science team that, that doesn't, go out and talk to stakeholders or doesn't have access to the information they need and we don't, you know, we need to have common understanding of how we're going to work together. So mm -hmm. it's for me, it's around my own team and getting them enabled and having access to data, access to tools, access to systems they need for them to be productive. 
but I spend more of my less of my time on the team once I've set them up. Yes, it's more on the out, outside of the team. So, what do the stakeholders need? How do we make sure that we are actually delivering work that is useful and can be consumed by the customers? And you know, I still see that as a biggest gap we have in in terms of um, analytics. Maybe I'll, I'll maybe I'll be cheeky leadership. Um, because I think data science, everyone's still really hung up on machine learning and and AI. And while that's all cool, most organisations aren't ready for that. Mm-hmm. So you can you know say that I'm a data scientist and I use machine learning, but all that tells me is that you understand the algorithms, or you might be able to take a bit of data and run it through a couple of different models. So what? Like I still don't feel that we've bridged that gap enough. Um, with and vendors are not helping, so suppliers and consultants and vendors are not happening because they're all positioning and saying we all you all should be doing AI and machine learning. But most companies, bigger companies, they it's not realistic. Like, who's gonna you know what call center is gonna let a robot go and you know arbitrate all the calls and robots are gonna you know answer all the chatbots are gonna all deal with every customer issue and complaint. It's just not realistic. It doesn't work that way. And I still feel that. We need to stop trying to overcomplicate some of the stuff and test where we should test. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, it's identifying at origin where are the areas where we could they're ready for some machine learning type of stuff and where we can we challenge. But you've got to have a base level of maturity already in place to do that. You've got to be comfortable with traditional analytics. Mm-hmm. You've got to already be comfortable with taking analytical assets and deploying them in your business processes. Because if you're not even using a propensity model for your call center activity or your campaigns, there's no way you're gonna let a machine learning algorithm take over and 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 do that next level of prescriptive analytics. Yeah. So it still comes back to that maturity model. You know, are you still in that reporting phase where you're doing reporting and analysis? You know, you're backward looking. Are you starting to get you know more predictive? And then obviously the next level of maturity is being prescriptive. And that's where machine learning can help. But we are most companies mm-hmm. I consulted to and here don't they're not ready for that. So I find it really frustrating where, uh, you know, since I've been here, I get bombarded by vendors and all telling me how I should be building churn models and you know, we've got machine learning algorithms and I just, you know, I'm just not interested because it doesn't matter how good it is yep. if we can't execute on it and the business can't consume it in a useful way that meets, you know, the capabilities they have, then it's a waste of money. Exactly, <laughs> exactly right. And a waste of the, you know, the time that it takes to do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm probably, I wouldn't call myself a data scientist, mm-hmm. um, mainly because I don't believe that I'm, I'm currently, my, the way I work really fits the mould that people have positioned it as. Um, but I'm struggling, I'm finding that people out there and as I'm advertising roles, people think that if they're a data scientist, it's the only way they're going to get, you know, get... Get into a, an organisation, and, and and I think there is we've we've over um, oversold it, mm-hmm. I think to the students in those areas, and so I hear a lot of com- people in other organisations having a lot of churn um, around data scientists because I think they come in on this promise of you'll be doing all this cool stuff, you'll be analysing, you know, large amounts of streaming data, you'll have all these applications that you're going to develop, and you're going to do on the edge, you know. Work and then the reality is they come to the organisation and they spend you know the first six months of their time they're just trying to get access to data yes. and make it useful um, and so then they leave <laughs> um, because the company is not ready for a data scientist in that way. What they are ready for though is someone who can help them 
consume the data. So less on focusing less on the analytical side, more on the business side, I think is where a data scientist should be building their skills. Maybe not on the technical side, although that's obviously an important part of it. I don't know what you've noticed in your work and people you've spoken to, but... No, definitely, definitely the, the same, that it's, it's not about the, the tools, uh, but it's about the, the application and, and making a difference in, in the organization instead of having the fanciest model um, known to man, you know? Um, yeah. And so you mentioned that uh, from, from the technology side and the vendors, there's a lot of push for machine learning and AI. How about on the, on the demand side with uh, stakeholders? Do they, start to, do they start the conversation with um, machine learning or AI, or they just want help with the business? Yeah, I mean, in the time I've been at Origin, I've not had a single you know, um, stakeholder ask me for a, a machine learning algorithm. Great. I don't think they, they would even, you know, they hear the words, everyone does. But, yes. So no, what they're saying to me um, is, this is these are the problems I'm having, you know, I don't, I don't have a good view of, of why customers are leaving us or what we could do differently to, to change that outcome. Um, and that's what conversations we should be happening, ha having if they're going to ask me um, for a machine learning model, um, then I, I'd, I'd be very surprised, number one. And two, I'd say, well, okay, what are you going to do with it? Correct. <laughs> if we could give you a completely automated application and system that could make all those decisions for you, would you let it run? And I get this, yeah, I would get this shocked look. I'm, I, I think I'd get this sceptical look of, no, nah, ain't going to happen. Um, so we do need the technology. So don't get me wrong, I'm not, you know, I think that is really important. We need to start testing some things um, and work out where, where they will make sense. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to address, you know, this industry is, is highly driven by discounts and, and churn is very high. You know, you know, it's it's a it's a you're very disruptive. Um, you know, disruptions coming at a, at scale in the energy industry. It's just a given. So, absolutely, we want to stay ahead of our competitors in the game as best as we can. Um, but you know, we want to do it in a way that you know we're, we're we're buying you know the tools and the technology at the right time. And so we need to be a little bit ahead of the business, yeah. but not years ahead of the business. You know, we need to bring them along. You know, along the along the journey. I hate that word, but you know, I mean, we need to bring them along um, with our thinking. Um, so we should never be. Actually, one of the things that one of the philosophies I have with my team is, you cannot start a piece of analytics work without documenting up front uh -huh. who your stakeholder is, why you're doing it, how you're going to measure the outcome and the benefit of it. And, and you're also thinking about, well, what's the, you know, what's the actual business process that I have to integrate into? So it's thinking about it up front, doing enough work up front so that you know exactly what you're going to do. It's okay, you can change things along the way if mm -hmm. things you find out things are different. But up front, the discipline is, it's only a couple of pages that you need to just document. Why am I doing this? Who am I doing it for? What's going to be different? How am I going to measure the success all that stuff up front, and if you don't have that, you are not to start the project. Correct. And and that that fundamentally was a big shift at Telstra as well when I was there, when the team, you know, were going off and building things that went nowhere, and mm -hmm. that's why because we didn't have that upfront discipline. Analysts don't often like to you know have constraints, constraints, but yes. you know my argument always to my team is well, 
yeah, but what if you build it and it just that it goes nowhere? Wouldn't that be more heartbreaking than building something that the business love and you get the accolades? Because at the end of the day, data scientists and analysts have a big ego when it yes. comes to their model. Yes. <laughs> so they cool. have a huge ego. So I play on that <laughs> and say, wouldn't you like the business to give you that pat on the back? Um, and I tell you, it works every time because... You know, I don't, you know, they don't like process, but I argue each time without the process, you will not get the benefits and you will not build something that's going to make a difference. That's right. That's exactly right. So it sounds like um, by, by the way that you've set up your team, they can be quite uh, autonomous in, in the, the work that they do and the direction that they, that they take as long as they um, maintain or stay to the guidelines that you've given them. Is that is that how it works? Yeah. So I try and create um, a structure where we try and cover off. So at a high level, I have I have the data science or the advanced analytics team, mm -hmm. as I call it, um, and that group of guys and girls. Uh, you know, we've got data scientists in there. We've got statisticians. And we've also got some really good business analysts, as I call them, people who you know don't necessarily have all those advanced skills, but there's a combination there. So really, that that is really important. Then I always have in my last few roles, I always have a, a a focus on what well, we used to be called data management. Now it's data engineering. Yes. <laughs> Always yes. have a small team of people who help, I suppose, balance out that creativity with some structure and process. So, mm -hmm. you know, especially these days with um, GDPRs, all the data privacy issues, we need to have a group of people who are thinking about those things. Yes. So the analysts can't be doing everything all the time. They need to have some freedom. I don't want to stifle their innovation and creativity at the same time there has to be some guidelines. So I always have a data engineering team that helps structure that up and give them, and also help automate things, you know, make sure that 80% of the data that they need for basic quick queries and things is always sitting there, right? We need to be able to build models quickly so there's a structure around that. Then I always have what I would call kind of a capability, analytics capability um, delivery manager type role, which are overarching, making sure that one, we have skills and competencies that we need and there's, a, you know, there's an ability for an analyst to have a career path, mm -hmm. but also that projects have got some governance and management around them. So they're tracking what these you know, projects are that the team are working on and just making sure that people are not spending six months down a rabbit hole where, you know, because they're trying to find that last percent of 2% of improvement in that model or the data is only 90% accurate and they're hung up on the 10% because unfortunately analysts have a tendency to get stuck. So that 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 role and, and, and it's just a, it is a very senior role but that role is kind of having a look at making sure that we're still delivering and we're still producing value to the business and measuring it. So they mm -hmm. provide the measurement framework. Um, they make sure that things are outcomes are uh, tracked and monitored. So the analysts don't have to get hung up on every model they produce, is it delivering? Someone else can take care of that once they deploy a model into production and someone else, other teams are monitoring it. So I try and balance it out so that we've got enough structure in place, but not too much that they feel completely bogged down. Um, and in terms of the tools, you know, I mean, open source is out there and I always say to the guys, I don't care if you want to go down the path and use Python or R, but at the end of the day, we have one app, one system that we're going to productionize models in. Uh -huh. And I'm going to set the direction on that, yeah. and then we're going to use that to productionize because we have to monitor you know, across the board, and we can't monitor it if you're building things offline and we're not integrating. So I tend to have commercial software that help productionize the analytics. But I'm, I'm happy for the team members if they've got, you know, preferences to use Python or R for other things because we can now deploy a lot of those models, you know, in production off a commercial software environment. So we just it's just balancing it out and, you know, we're not there yet. We've got a long way to go here at Origin to try and get 
all, everything all set up and lined up. But I always feel that it's that balance that's, that we've got to strike between that two things. The other thing that's really important for me, and I say to the guys, is focus on the business problem. Yes. Don't come to me and say, I want to do text mining. Yes. Which they have done recently. Uh-huh. I want to do text mining. Okay. Uh, what's the business problem you're trying to solve? Yes. And then now they're starting to learn my way of thinking. Um, they're going, oh, okay, yep. I say, go and find it. Go and find a business problem that needs text mining. You know, if you want to play around with the software, do that in, you know, in your own time mm-hmm. or when you have some spare capacity maybe. But we don't have any of that. What analyst has got spare That's right, yes. spare capacity? <laughs> so I always go back and say that. And the other thing is diversity. I always try and hire um, a- enough diversity so that, We've got that different thinking, and that means you know different age groups, different backgrounds. I like people with economics backgrounds mm-hmm. as well as pure data science, as well as mathematics. Um, we've even I've even hired a rocket scientist before and said, right, you've got a different perspective. Engineers, mm-hmm. you know, whatever we need, have that diversity and age groups. You know, people coming through uni are great because they don't have the biases that we do have in our own minds. They don't, they're not tainted by a pattern yet that we've established you know, in our 20-year career. They are really good to have in a room. So when we're solving problems, I try and bring in, even if the, you know, the, the, the student doesn't say much, when, sometimes when they do say something, it's like, wow, okay, we really need to hear that. So trying to bring a diverse group of people together and not just in our team. I'll always bring in a business person as well um, that, to say, well, tell us whether the ideas we're coming up with are just too crazy or will that work in in your business area so trying to bring in and so starting with the end in mind is you know is a philosophy I have you know what's the execution going to look like so if we can even if we hypothesize and map it out mm-hmm. and, and we're making it up it doesn't matter because it anchors us back to the outcome because if you start with the data you'll never well you can but it's not your path is probably going to take a bit longer to get to the outcome than yes. if you start with the end in mind Definitely, because you don't know where, where you're going, right? Mm. Um, that's, that's really, really great. That's really great. And so when you look to, uh, to hire data scientists, uh, do you look for different things almost every time? Or is there yeah, a certain... Yeah, I, I try and, depending on what the team looks like, I do try and balance it out yes. um, between that. And I'm finding that's really good. There's more and more um, females out there now yes. that are heading into this field. When I was studying... Um, especially when I did my engineering, you know, there was you know two hundred people in a lecture theater, and there's five women. That's right. Like it was, it was really bad. It's so much better now, and and I try and also, you know, I work with Deakin Uni. Um, I've got some good contacts at Melbourne Business School. I try and keep in touch with the universities and see what they're doing, and and see how I can help because I want to encourage women to head down this path because it isn't just data geeking that goes on, there's so much more to it. And I think women gravitate more to that communication side of it, the engagement with people and being able to nurture and to educate. You know, we naturally, you know, not that men don't do it, um, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm generalising, but, you know, women have tend to be on those softer skills and, and the men type tend to, you know, like the techie stuff. But it's a good balance, right? Yep. So that's why we need to have a good representation of, of the genders, the age groups, the backgrounds, you know, and no, I always say to my team, no, no idea is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is no bad idea. Yeah, we might not be able to do what you're thinking, yeah. but, but at least tell, talk to us about it. And, uh, you know, if I hear people shooting people down, which I, I always kind of take it and um, try and discourage that. So I try and encourage people to 
feel they can open up and talk about things, and even if it's not something that's feasible, um, you never you, you know do that in a <laughs> in an open environment anyway. Um, but also, we should we should be encouraging different ideas, not not you know saying no straight away. So exactly right. Yeah. That's yeah. great. That's really great. Yeah. So I think the data scientists as I said, yeah. It's looking for that mix of things. Um, and I also, one thing I found in my experience, and I don't know if this has changed, so this could be different today, and I'm sorry to all the people that have got PhDs, but I just sometimes find that um, people, too much education can sometimes actually be a disadvantage because you start to, I suppose, um, have a very uh, complex view of how you want to solve a problem because you, your mind gets trained in a very different way when you do a PhD. And I, and I understand that, you know, I've not done one, so again, I apologise <laughs> that I'm speaking out of turn, but I just find I've hired a couple of over the years and I've found they've not really worked out mm. the way. Whereas if I hire someone who maybe has a postgrad up to an MBA, I don't know, there's just a, they're just not as conditioned um, to learn a certain way, whereas find PhD um, students and people who get them sometimes, you know, it, 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 it's not worked well for, in the types of roles or the teams that I run anyway. And yes. maybe it's, you know, so I think there is definitely um, a lot of value in people having a PhD and specialising, but sometimes that specialisation, I think, can actually mean that you're not, you're not as open to another way of, you know, of solving a problem. That's right. That's right. Keeping an eye on... on um the end result and the application and having multiple, be able to work on multiple pro, um, problems that go to that application stage. Yeah. Um, There's definitely something to, to watch out for. Uh, I wanted to ask you, um, what, what do you think makes a great uh, data science leader? Um, good question. Um, I, think, I think being able to... Um, not think that you know the answer all the time. Mm. <laughs> I know that's absolutely strange, but I'm very conscious. I try to be very conscious of my biases. Um, having worked, you know, for a long time and in this industry for a long time, over, you know, over 25 years, I find that, I, you know, I'm in a hurry, I'm in a rush all the time and I tend to just go into my mind and go, what's a pattern that I've seen before? And I go, boom, that's the answer. Yes. I'm really, I think a, a good leader is someone who stops giving the answers and lets their team find the answers. So I think a good leader is a coach and a mentor mm -hmm. to the group, not, not a boss. So I always say to my guys, I'm not your manager. I'm not here to manage you. I don't want to manage you. <laughs> don't care what time you come in. Don't care what time you go yeah. home. Your value, you know, my role here is to facilitate, to coach, and to make people I ask questions, right? So I think you know, one of the things I try and do is drive that curiosity, you know. So what makes a good data scientist, I think, is curiosity. But I think what makes a good leader is, is, is asking people, being able to ask the right questions so that we, we unlock, you know, people's um, thinking beyond what they know, you know. And you, everyone sees this. You see this a lot in everything, you know. If you work in retail for a long time, you tend to think like a retail, you know, in that retail business. You know, one thing that's awesome about being a data scientist or a statistician is that, I've never stayed in one industry, and I think yes. that's helped. Whereas I come across here at Origin, and again, it's similar in this industry. And mm. I had it in telco too. They've been in telco forever, but unfortunately, group thinking kicks in, yes. <laughs> and those patterns become so ingrained in the way you respond, and you can't help it. We can't help it. It's not a flaw. It's just the way our brains work. So I think a good leader is someone who 
who really, um, you know, helps people unlock new ideas by being a coach and asking questions and, and having the team come up with the solutions. I have to stop myself. Sometimes I'm in a hurry and I think I know the answer. And, and sometimes, you know, actually, I'll admit, most, a lot of the times I probably am right, but I'm not helping the team if I just give them the answer. Correct. So, you know, I show how good I am, smart I am, maybe. <laughs> um, but I don't, need, I don't need that affirmation myself. I don't yeah. feel I don't like to people to tell me that, you know, I don't need that anymore. Um, once upon a time, yes, I like to be the smartest person in the room. Yes. Um, I think I've evolved past that now. I like other people to be smarter than me in the room. Um, and I think the other thing about uh, a data science leader is that helping manage stakeholders is really important because analysts and data scientists, mm -hmm. as they're coming through their career, are not naturally going to be good at that. Yes. And if we can manage stakeholders, their expectations, and really work with them to do that two-way communication, education, I think that, that really helps the teams. And then also measuring. One gap that I've still I've seen, and it's, it's a gap here, and through my seven years of consulting, I saw it over and over, is measuring the value of analytics. People would forget that measurement up front mm -hmm. all the time. They would come up with a great model, a great idea, but no one not taking the time to think, how am I going to measure if it's any good? Yes. And using the excuse of, well, okay, the camp, the offer was not right, is not good enough, right? Because we're not, we're, we're part of a value chain. Mm -hmm. We're part of a decision-making process that includes data and analytics and data science, but also then includes someone else making a decision or executing something. We have to, we can't use that as an excuse to say our model was perfect, that the offer was no good. We have to work together to measure that and, and be able to attribute the different components to it. Because I know it can be done, because I've done it over and over, but I find people use that as an excuse all the time. And as a leader, that's my job is to push back on that, and not just with my own team, but with our stakeholders. Oh, we can't measure that if it works. Yes, we can. And it may not be perfect, but at least we start with something. So I'm always trying to push that. And I think all leaders should be challenging themselves and the business to measure the value. Exactly right. That is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, I just have a, a couple, two last questions uh, before we, we wrap up. And it's around the uh, challenges in, in data science, around what, are, what do you see as the current challenges and the future challenges? And you can take them uh, together or, or separate. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think the challenge is at the moment, and again, this all changes as things progress, is yes. we're in the hype cycle, right, yes. of, of, of data science, machine learning, AI, and I think there's unrealistic expectations about what it can do. Mm. I think they will be realised. Mm. I, actually I actually believe that AI will become a, a mainstream capability that's fed into lots of different business processes and business, you know, thinking as the world moves to more and more digital. But I think that the challenge today is that a lot of organisations trying, wanting to think they can leapfrog the basics and just go straight to the high-end data science. And I just don't believe you can. I think there's no shortcuts. <laughs> like anything in life, you have to do the hard yards and do the basic stuff before you get it. My daughter's a gymnast, right? Mm -hmm. She's not going to start off um, and just be able to do a massive backflip on her own, right? She has to progress. There's no way to avoid having to build the foundational skills and things. And she's had to learn this the hard way. She tried to do the really hard, advanced stuff that she's YouTubed and sees, you know, Simone Biles, who's the most amazing gymnast you've ever yes, seen. Yes. And she said, I want to do that. And so, you know, she thinks she, but I let her, I had to let her go through that learning of realizing she couldn't do it. Yeah. So now, you know, same thing, same principles apply. We have to build the foundational things. You cannot leapfrog and get to a full data science implementation without doing the hard yards around change management, mm -hmm. 
data integration, you know, you know, um, educating the business, understanding business processes, learning together and iterating and being able to do that. You just cannot avoid that. You can't leapfrog it and do it. And maybe in the future a new startup can, mm -hmm. but most of us don't work in startups. Most of us don't work with organisations that don't have legacy systems, legacy processes, legacy people. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. The reality is most of us work in, for companies that have baggage. And so I, I think that's my biggest, you know, um, observation is that people try and skip steps and it won't work. You have to do all the, you have to build up to it. So I always say to my team, my job is to build the roadmap for you and help give you the environment and the tools and the, 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 the coaching for you to build those foundations and grow it from there. And I think all of, you know, we all need to look at that. So data science is challenged today because the hype is still the hype. Um, and people think you know, executives are being sold this you know, amazing thing and, and vendors do it all the time, but the reality is that's not how it works you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think a challenge is that. Where it's going, absolutely, I think we're going to get there. We have you know, machine, a parallel processing now, the way the technology works. When there's some of the algorithms that I learned at uni back in the day as machine learning algorithms, the only reason why we couldn't run them is because we didn't have the computing power. Mm -hmm. We do now, right? So that's completely changed. But is it new? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's not new. But what is new is our ability to process it. But what we haven't solved for yet is the integration and the execution of it in a way that you know works. And there's lots of companies doing trials and things, and that's the way to do it. And we'll make mistakes, and then we'll learn, and we'll screw it up, and then we'll go, oh, shit, why do we buy that? It doesn't work. But I think we need to, if we start to keep doing it over and over, we will improve and we will get better at it and we'll, we'll learn like we did with propensity modelling. If you think about it, 10 years ago, no one used propensity models. Now it's mainstream. But now it's old school. It's batch. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what? It's still a foundational capability that helps us build upon the skills. So back to the gymnast an analogy. That's part of what the building block is to build up those basic skills, get people comfortable with more simple analytics, mm -hmm. more simple stuff. And I can tell you now, uh, logistic regression is not a simple concept for a you know for a non-analyst to get. So yeah. we may think it's old school analytics. No, nah, it's not to the people who are still trying to understand the real basic foundation. So you try throwing a machine learning model at you know at a call center operator who's been you know working in that space and who uses has very good instincts mm -hmm. and very good you know understanding of the business they will still trump any you know a lot of the time they'll still trump a a predictive model or a machine learning algorithm because they're talking to the customer and they can pick up on nuances that no machine's going to do so you know we've got to be you know pragmatic about it and find the right use cases to to apply it so i think there's it's exciting because there's lots of things to come but I think we've got to stop trying to leapfrog yes. <laughs> the basics and, um, and and jump to the techie stuff before we've you know laid the foundations for it. So. That's fantastic. So true. So true. So true. Yeah. Thank you so much for this. It's been so excellent. So so excellent. Um, yeah, I had so much fun. Uh, thank you so much for making the time. This You're welcome. Really You're welcome. Great. Hopefully, it's uh, yeah. Some people will resonate with uh, some of these stories. Definitely. It's been gold. <laughs> Thanks so much. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, 
LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.